Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. So today is my interview with Danny Young. He's my first interview of 2016. Currently, Danny stays busy touring with Matthew and Gunnar Nelson as well as doing a variety of session work, contracting, and music supervising here in Nashville. But before he returned to Nashville, he was living in New York, and he was doing some Broadway work. He spent 11 months on the road touring with Queen's We Will Rock You. Uh, He's done a variety of other musicals, including uh, the Green Day musical American Idiot. Danny's just created these opportunities where he's just pulled together his collective musical talents to find opportunities to stay busy in the music business, not just from playing drums, but being a a music director, a supervisor, help writing the book for the musical The Nutty Professor. Also want to talk about something real quick. Uh, We have dropped a few hints about some new things that are coming up this year in 2016, and I'm very, very excited about this new merge. Uh, It's actually called Merge Media Network. You might know the drummer's resource with Nick Ruffini. Uh, Through some mutual friends, I have had an opportunity to get to know Nick a little bit and uh, make this connection with our podcast, Working Drummer. And so through this Merge Media Network, we are going to be working with Nick, and uh, he is going to be putting out three podcasts. This is kind of the start of his Merge Media Network. And um, so please check out Drummer's Resource with Nick Ruffini. And under that network, there's going to be Daniel Glass's uh, podcast that is going to be um, just a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music and and life and philosophy and and deconstructions of of different ideas, drumming ideas. and, and, of course, Nick's uh, Drummer's Resource podcast, um, he talks with uh, just some of the world's greatest drummers and music industry pros, um, interview-based, similar to ours. Um, but um, the one unique thing that our Working Drummer podcast is going to be doing that's a little bit different is I'm going to be splitting up some of the host duties with uh, a friend of ours, um, Zach Albetta. Zach was, uh, I think he's from Kansas City, but he was based in L.A. for many years. He's living in Atlanta now, but he's going to pull some of his resources and introduce us to a whole new set of drummers outside of my hometown here in Nashville um, to bring you that perspective. And I'm real excited about partnering up with Zach. Um, I'm getting to know Zach a lot more these days, and just he just seems like an insightful um, articulate guy, and I'm excited to uh, share this um, this information uh, with everybody and, and kind of share a little bit of the limelight uh, with Zach and uh, get a different perspective. So this week is my interview with Danny Young. Next week is Zach's first interview that he's going to be introducing in the Working Drummer podcast, and then the next week is mine, and then we're going to be switching back and forth throughout the year. So I hope you guys really dig what's going on um, and uh, and with our connection with Nick Ruffini, and more about that in the future. As always, please check out WorkingDrummer.net. There's links there for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, 
go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast. You can get sent. These new interviews will be sent to your smart device every week. Uh, real excited about what's going on in 2016. 2015 was awesome. We're coming on our one-year anniversary. Thanks to all the support. And um, so let's get to it. I've been rambling on and on. So here is Danny Young. Enjoy. You are officially my first interview of 2016. We're coming on our one-year anniversary, and it's it's been great. So, well, it's been killer to watch. I think just how this has exploded too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's been doing really really well. I mean, I yeah. listened to the first couple that you did, and they just yeah they get getting better and better. So nice, nice. Yeah, well, certainly the audio quality I think is a little bit better. We got two mics and <laughs> still borrowing them. Uh, <laughs> um, well, man, tell me about your gig now. What's keeping you most busy? Is uh, currently, I mean, there, there's a variety of stuff, but my number one gig at the moment is actually touring with Matthew and Gunnar Nelson. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are probably, you know, shaking their heads saying, who exactly is that? Uh, the late 80s, early 90s, they had a famous hair band called Nelson, and yeah. they looked like Swedish chicks. So <laughs> um, people, I mean, honestly, everybody's like, I'm not sure who they are. So I, I actually have a photo saved as like my cover screen of my phone. So I can just show people and then yeah. they're instantly like, oh, yeah. Um, right. What makes them also interesting is their dad was Ricky Nelson, yep. who is Elvis's biggest competitor. Yep. And their grandparents were Ozzy and Harriet Nelson. So it's actually three generations of success, successive uh, number one hit makers. Yeah. So we are not only doing the Nelson stuff, we are also doing a show called Ricky Nelson Remembered. We're doing a Christmas tour that we just finished. I think, I think we did 25 dates through mid-November to mm-hmm. December. Um, they do something called scrap metal, which is sort of a, a mega '80s hair band that you know it's different guitarists and lead singers that come in and do a mega group. Okay. Um, so I mean, it's it's a variety of stuff. So it's not just one gig. I work with them on on a, on several different projects. Okay. And we're currently starting a country like a country style band. So. Wow. Lots of interesting stuff. So the country style thing is going to be in addition to all these other projects. They're backing away from the 80s stuff because they're, they're trying to sort of separate that, that I guess, vision of what people had of them mm-hmm. uh, and do something completely new. And their sound is just, I mean, it's completely unique and, and cool. Yeah. Um, what's really fun, too, is that I also get to sing on everything. So right now, everything nice. we're doing is a trio. So I'm singing all the really high uh, female harmonies. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. Cool. So it's just it's just the three of you on stage. Yep. Right okay. now. Uh, eventually, I think the country thing, we're going to definitely get a steel player and uh, some other stuff. But Matthew plays bass, Gunnar plays guitar, and then I do all the drums, percussion, and backup vocals. Okay. Are you guys running tracks or anything like that? Not at the moment. No. Okay. Okay. Which is nice. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just it's three guys playing live. Yeah. Monitors going deaf. <laughs> oh, not even it. you're not running in ears typically. We, we did on the Christmas tour, but most of the time it's just monitors. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's it's about as old school as it gets, which I actually really love. It's a nice throwback. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting uh, when I started getting into using in ears, then mixing in clicks and just whether bands wanted me to do that or not. It was just kind of a thing to kind of stay in shape with the click live or being the player that is the only one that has the click in in a lot of situations. Now I'm in a situation where people don't care. (laughs) 
You I know? think I think once you get to a certain level, I mean, I mean, ninety nine percent of the stuff that I've ever done has been to a click track. Even the Broadway shows, you yes. know, everything's uh-huh. been to click. But I think you get to a point in a level in your career where it's no longer needed. And I mean, it sounds like you are anyway. You know, mm-hmm. I think I don't know when you're first starting, it's sort of hard to figure out where you're sitting with the click and that sort of stuff. And you know, yeah. I mean, just. You, you practice your ass off and then all yeah. of a sudden it just becomes natural. Mm-hmm. And I think that's obviously the ultimate goal, but it's nice almost to not have that. So you can really just focus on the music and the playing. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to get too far into this, but it, it almost seems to me or what I'm, what I'm discovering, you're just reminding me of this. I don't want to get, again, I don't want to get too far into it, but as I've gotten away from using ears or different flight eight situations where I don't know the engineer, it's a risk to use ears with somebody you don't trust. Um, I'm rediscovering how much I'm missing the nuances of the acoustic kit Mm -hmm. that I missed. Um, there was one year, maybe five years ago, I played maybe two gigs without ears and the rest of the year was all with ears and you play differently. You play, you approach the instrument differently unless you have really great ears and a really great engineer and a really great monitoring system. It really, your dynamic level, the way you balance yourself on the kit is interesting. Oh yeah. Um, I actually, I ran into, I, on the Broadway shows I was on, I ended up getting some injuries because I when you don't hear yourself play, you don't really realize how hard you're hitting. So I ended up getting trigger finger in both hands of my pointer fingers. Trigger? Um, what is trigger finger? Essentially, when you bend your finger, imagine the tendon snapping out of alignment to the side. Oh. And you could actually hear it. I mean, it was one of the most disgusting things oh my I've ever gosh. had in my life. But I mean, imagine trying to play drums with two fingers that every time you bend them, they're snapping. And I mean, that's possibly the worst pain that I've I've had. Holy crap. Uh, Tennis yeah. elbow, trigger finger. Yeah. What is, yeah, what similar. is, there's a comedian out there. Take that and run with it. I don't know what the, <laughs> well, that's going to be my next band name. Trigger finger. Trigger finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're doing that and it sounds like there's a variety of stuff and does your setup change at all with the style of music or with the shows that they're doing? It does. Uh, I mean the Christmas tour, I went out about as simple as I could get, uh, you know, floor tom, snare drum, hi-hat, kick drum, one cymbal. You know, nice. I, I just, it, it's Christmas music and I didn't feel like I wanted to step over any boundaries. So I just wanted it to let it be what it was as much as I could and uh-huh. just creatively let myself do something that I normally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So instead of having, you know, a five piece, just dumb it down about as far as you can possibly go. Like, yeah. And that was so much fun. Yeah. Cause I, I started coming up with things, you know, hi-hat patterns, offbeat hi-hat patterns and weird syncopations of hi-hat patterns that I normally never would have played. But because I'm missing all of this other stuff to fill in, I had to start getting creative drumming wise to fill in those holes. Yes. It is amazing. You think let's add some stuff and be creative Mm -hmm. and then no, do the complete opposite (laughs) and see what you can do. That's, that's great. I'm guessing you have kind of some creative freedom in that gig. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, we're all super easygoing. Um, I won't say we didn't practice at all. We did, we did practice some, but, um, it was really fun to, I mean, the difference between the first show going out for the Christmas tour, for example, compared to the last tour and same with the Ricky Nelson stuff when we're doing that. I mean, it really, there's no strict, um, I guess, requirement that I have to play this fill every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's times that they'll look at me and if things are going well, I mean, we'll just keep going. And mm. my, one of my favorite things, 
uh, on the Ricky Nelson show, he had so many number one hits that I couldn't possibly know all of them. Yes. So every single show we do, all of a sudden they start a tune that I've never heard before. So it's it's really fun for me, and it keeps me on my toes to be doing this stuff that is completely out of my genre. Mm-hmm. You know, of, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even close to when I was born. You know, <laughs> right, right. But but there's a style, and I think once you understand the style, yeah, exactly, you can get away with anything. Right. Well, that's there's a lot of trust. Then it sounds like, and they know you've got big ears, and the fact that you're not running tracks, you have mm-hmm. that freedom. That's that's awesome, man. Um, and you're living here in yep. Nashville. Yep, I live okay. in Nashville. Uh, I moved here the first time in 2010, uh, and I did a bunch of different random you know, country tours and stuff like that, sort of one-off deals mm-hmm. or, you know, go out for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I toured with Daryl Perry for a while. He was a country artist, but that was all van and trailer. Yeah. Uh, and then I got a call to go out on a Broadway show out of New York. So I was kind of splitting my time between Nashville and New York for about four years. So after you moved, you got the call yeah. for the Broadway gig. Now, had you ever done the Broadway gig before? I hadn't, but what my connection And we're talking that, about Broadway. Broadway, not, not Nashville York. Broadway, not New York Broadway. New York yeah, Broadway. Yeah. Um, my connection to that was actually through cruise ships. My, my first sort of, I guess, gig out of college was I popped on cruise ships. And a year and a half after I started that, they started doing official Broadway shows on yes. board. Mm-hmm. So I was in Venice, Italy. And I got called to our, um, well, I, I had applied for Chicago, Chicago the Musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and What cruise line? That was uh, Royal Caribbean. Royal Caribbean. And it was on Oasis of the Seas, which is the world's largest cruise ship. So I, I had applied for it because yeah. I was super pumped. I mean, that's right up my alley. That's what I did in high school and college. Um, so I'd applied for it, but they basically told me flat out no. Mm-hmm. Uh, a week and a half before the drummer was supposed to show up, he quit. <laughs> so, what year was this? 2000 and oh goodness probably eight or nine okay i mean yeah i think it was i think it was two well yeah it would have been 2009 i'm pretty sure okay um so he had quit and i got a phone call asking if i could immediately fly out the next day to uh finland which is where the ship was being built so i had two weeks of rehearsals with the uh cast and band and then we did our first sailing so so the first launch of Oasis of the Seas. Yep, yep. I mean, when I got on board, there were no walls, there were no wood floors. I mean, there was nothing. It was, I mean, it was a frame. Yeah. And we did a five, I think it was five or seven day sailing from Finland over to Miami. Yes. And in that seven days, all of a sudden the carpet was laid, the chandeliers were like, it was one of the craziest transformations I've ever seen. But uh, I digress. Uh, it's a big ship. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's that's how I actually got my Broadway start was playing Chicago. And I met all the official people that worked on the New York show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I um, also did Hairspray. Yeah. Um, so those two Broadway shows, which then gave my resume a little bit of a boost. And mm-hmm. I started sending it out to people, didn't expect to hear anything, and then randomly got a phone call. Nice, nice. One of my interviews was, was a guy named Dan Sia, who works for Royal Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and... For people who've heard this, they they know that uh, the band that I work with does a lot of one-offs on cruises with Royal Caribbean over the last three years. I bet I've done 50 shows <laughs> or 50 cruises uh, and many on the Oasis. And a friend of mine, uh, Jim Maneri, was the music director, uh, the conductor of Chicago on Oasis, mm-hmm. but probably after 
you had left. Yeah, I, I mean, I did the install on that as well. So, I mean, from the ground up, you know, the very first It seems of it. like the musicals that they bring in, especially classics, they're starting with an, an A-team, the writer or the uh, choreographer or whatever from the 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 land oh, show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, kind of funny tie-in to this. Um, I toured on We Will Rock You, the Queen show. Yeah. Two days after I finished We Will Rock You on like the, the U.S. tour, mm-hmm. I moved straight from there to installing as music supervisor We Will Rock You on Royal Caribbean. You were the musical supervisor? So okay. I took over as music I still am, yeah. So okay. it's a five-year contract on that show. So every six months I go out for a month, I teach the band, I work with them, get them all trained up, and then okay. launch every new every new version of the show that goes on the ship. So okay. Royal Caribbean is kind of the gift that keeps on giving for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the call based on your experience with Royal Caribbean. Yep. To go to New York to do what? What was the music? That was actually Young Frankenstein, the Mel Brooks show. That's awesome. Which, and I will say, I played 315 shows of Young Frankenstein, and I was still laughing on the last day. I mean, that is one of the funniest musicals I've ever seen. It's really awesome. That was an interesting tour, though, because I not only was playing the drum set, but I was doing the percussion book as well. So it was a what we call a combination book in yeah. New York. Okay. So you're essentially a, a, an octopus. <laughs> yes. You have to have eight arms, and yeah, yeah you're playing everything. It's a, wow. It's a little bit mad, but fun. Did you feel like, I know there's gigs where people get tour chops. You're out on the road, um, you know, you're playing a fair amount, but you're playing the same 10, 12 songs every night, sometimes 20 songs. And it's different than playing the bar scene, Mm -hmm. doing those three, four hour gigs. Do you feel like you had just insane... You had all these responsibilities and you were, were you guys playing a lot? I mean, were you... Is it, was it those kind of was it that kind of gig that just feeds your musical soul or did it sap you of that? And I mean, that's kind of why I'm back in Nashville. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, long story short, I, I just started to feel like a lot of people that do the Broadway shows are, and and this isn't everybody, but yeah. I just felt like I personally was falling into the uh, case of clocking in and clocking out. Mm-hmm. That was my day job, mm-hmm. you know. I would do whatever I wanted during the day, um, mm-hmm. hang out with my friends, go get coffee, eat, and then you walk to the theater at exactly 6.30, you clock in, you play the show, you go home. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's just, I think after three and a half years of that, mm-hmm. I sort of, I just, I was craving something else. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't fulfilling me like I thought it was going to. Right. Um, that being said... I mean, I've played a lot of really cool shows and gotten to work with some people that had I not done the Broadway stuff, I never would, you know, be where I am. Oh, yeah. Yeah. um, I guess I was looking for what I missed about that was the, I guess, the hang. I really missed the hang. Mm. And New York is a very different place than Nashville. Like, people are so nice here. Oh, really? Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that was another thing. Living in New York, just, it was miserable. I just couldn't stand it. So, coming back to Nashville was probably the best decision I've ever made. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, what other musicals were you doing there? I I started on Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, I moved from that, came back to Nashville, and actually debuted The Nutty Professor. Um, So, that was actually working with the original Jerry Lewis. Wow. Um, and I actually got to write the drum book on that. So I was working with Marvin Hamlish on the last piece that he ever wrote. 
That's amazing. Um, so I actually have my handwritten manuscript from that musical, which is which is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. So explain to some explain to me um, what's involved in writing a book like that. I mean, because I remember the first time I heard that was or heard about that or understood that was Tommy Igo mm-hmm. writing the book for. Uh, um, Sorry, Lion the King. Lion King. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is which I've seen, which is amazing. And so, what's what's involved with that? Um, I basically showed up to cast rehearsals on day one, mm-hmm. and then the choreographer and I, uh, her name was Joanne. Her and I became very, very close friends <laughs> because basically my job was to translate anything that they were doing with the choreography into hits in the music and sound effects and that sort of yeah. thing. Because, again, this was this was another book that wasn't just drum set. It was also a lot of percussion stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what, what was really fun about that was they had sort of a general piano guideline and, and musical sort of theme, I guess you would call it, okay. from uh, Marvin Hamlish. But then there were three of us in the room that were sort of in charge of, of broadening that and creating an actual piece with the lyrics. So, uh, Rupert Holmes, uh, some people might, might recognize that name, but he was, he was the guy that wrote the book okay. for that, uh, and all the lyrics. But, um, it was a lot of just sitting down with a piano player and trying things and see what works. And then, um, uh, every three or four days, Jerry and Marvin would come into the room, sit down, we would play them what we had yeah, and they would sort of put their stamp of approval on it or say, mm, no, uh, my favorite moment, <laughs> Marvin Hamlish came in and we were playing a uh, song called Dance to My Own Drummer. And there was one section that the music supervisor said, I'm not sure I like what you're doing there. Can you lay out mm-hmm. and just don't play? Yeah. So I stopped playing and then I jumped back in where I was supposed to. We finished the song. All I heard from across the room was Marvin Hamlish shouting, drummer, what's the name of this song? And I said, dance to my own drummer he said then why the hell weren't you playing <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that, that's just that's just surreal I, you know? yeah <laughs> well was there something about uh what was it that you were doing that somebody said we got to get danny in here to be a part of this creative process well what's funny was i actually volunteered um I mean, in situations like that, usually the orchestrator would do it, but I was going to be in rehearsals anyway. So I basically told them, listen, I'm here. I want to do it. If you guys are okay with it, let me write it. Um, You typically don't get paid for that, even if you are hired to do it. It, It's weird. You either get, at least this is how I understand it. You either get credit or Uh you get paid. So I chose the credit way over getting paid because that was, I mean, the experience to do that and putting that on a resume is far, far surpasses, you know, any sort of money. Okay. That's awesome. So there, therein is a lesson. I've, there's something that, uh, that needs to be filled and I'm going to volunteer and take that experience, Mm -hmm. which is more valuable than something monetarily that we all are just trying to pay our bills and, but how do we use that to further our career? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. that's awesome, man. And trust me, I mean, I could have used the money at that point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nashville's nice and affordable. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. So we did all those rehearsals in New York and then we opened the show here and we sat in Nashville for six straight weeks running the show. Oh, um, nice. And then straight off of that, I went back to New York 
um, started doing a bunch of jazz gigs. So I was at Birdland doing some shows there, um, which was again, another bucket list of, you know, something that I'd always wanted to do. For sure. Um, and then I got a call to audition for American Idiot, the Green Day show. Mm -hmm. Um, I auditioned, went great. Uh, they offered me the gig. I said, I need this amount of money. They said no. And I turned down the gig. Uh, that was an interesting thing because I wasn't quite ready to leave New York because things were going so well that I promised myself if they didn't offer X amount that I wouldn't go. So they didn't, they hired somebody else. That person ended up getting fired because he never bothered to learn the drum book. Cause the most important thing in Broadway shows is you learn the book. You played exactly the same every single night. Wow. Uh, never yeah. bothered learning the book. So I got a call three months later, uh, asking if I wanted to come back out or uh, I not come back out, but come right. out. Yeah. And they offered me what I had originally asked for. So, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up on the gig anyway. And how did you know what to ask for? I didn't. I just, I just asked for what I knew comfortably I could leave New York and not be mad at myself for. Right. Cause you were doing the jazz gigs, you were yeah. doing some of those things, but to get back into that scene, it had to be a certain pay. Right. Yeah, because okay. I was trying, I was kind of trying to get out of the touring thing. Now I've learned that I just love touring. <laughs> yeah, that's just sort of my my mo, I guess. I know it, it's it's one of those things when after a while it's it's like, man, I, what's next? What's going on? And then you get away from it and you realize it can be can be fun mm-hmm. and seeing things. And um, what about after that? Were you doing any more musicals? I finished American Idiot, and then five days later, I started rehearsals for We Will Rock You, the Queen show. And I wanted to was... ask you about Green. I want to ask you about that. I just remember now. Oh, yeah. Um, because I want to, the We Will Rock You audition for uh, Brian May. <laughs> but the, the um, when you were doing the Green Day show, didn't the band come out and see the show a couple times? They did, yeah. I mean, they would come out occasionally. Uh, it was interesting because I think we probably saw the wives and family more than we actually saw them. And, I mean, they would they would come out all the time and bring us chocolates and candy and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But, nice. Um, yeah, it it's weird on those shows to be playing a Broadway show yeah. of music from people that you grew up listening to and then they're in the audience but you still know you're playing a broadway show but it's based on you know punk rock music or you know queen or right it's it's just a really it's it's sort of a trippy (laughs) trippy mind yeah i can imagine and i don't know if we were recording at the time but i was telling you my discovery of american idiot and, Mm -hmm. and the drum parts and how fun it was to dig into that record how different or is there a difference between the Broadway version of that Green Day record and what Trey Cool does? That's actually really interesting because uh, when I booked the part and when I started or when I got the audition, I actually went to the original Green Day recording and learned exactly what he did on the three on the three songs I had to audition on. So I learned them pretty much verbatim. Yeah. Um, then when I booked the show and they gave me the music, the sheet music was absolutely nothing like what I had learned. So that puts you in an interesting situation of, do I learn the sheet music yes. note for note, or do I learn what I know is correct? And yes. um, I went with what I know is correct, which was the correct choice. 
So I, I went through and I actually learned pretty much every single drum fill note for note based on, uh, you know, what the original recordings were. Um, if you reference the Broadway recording, the studio recording from the actual musical, yeah, that's actually all the guys from Green Day that recorded it. So they actually, I mean, Trey Cool played the drums on that album. It wasn't the Broadway drummer. Trey Cool played that. So okay. everything that he's doing is pretty much identical to what he actually did on the American Idiot album. Okay. So, so. he didn't change things. He just played it again. Right. Essentially. Okay. I mean, so there's did, always going to be little nuances, but yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Right, right. That's interesting because, you know, we've talked a couple times about people that are doing artist gigs and um, sometimes, you know, it's like, well, do they want you to learn note for note what's on the record mm-hmm. or are you free to do whatever or, you know, so it's, it's either A or B, you know, a certain amount of freedom. But you had C, you had the record. You, in a Broadway show, I think you've made it clear, you don't improvise, you don't, right. there's no creative, there's very limited creative freedom, if at all, but now you had sheet music that was written. And we all know that there's times where it's, it could be a big band chart. It could be a straight-up drum chart written by non-drummers. And we have to interpret either a lead sheet, a lead horn part, oh, yeah. a rough drum chart, or a straight-up drum chart that was written by a non-drummer. Well, the easiest thing to do in a drum chart is copy and paste <laughs> one bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're stuck. Yeah, we're stuck reading a repeat sign for for six pages. Yeah. Do I play eighth notes on this kick drum the whole way through? What's, what is this? <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so that was the good. That was that was the good. That was the right choice then, right? Mm-hmm. For you having learned the record and go in and do the record and did you change the book did you bring that to their attention i i still have my original book and what i did was i went through and i actually hand notated every single change that i did so i went through i changed all the bass drums i added the drum fills because there there was not a single drum fill written in the entire hour and a half show so it basically was you know slashes repeat 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 and then it said fill so, I mean, if you were supposed to jump in and sub that show and you had never heard Green Day before, I mean, that's just asking for disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, my mind is reeling because there was a couple songs that um, actually my buddy and I would we'd say, hey, man, you know this fill on American Idiot? That's really cool. There's these drum breaks. And uh, I'm just going to learn that for fun. Oh, and that's really Jesus cool. Jesus of Suburbia is a nine and a half minute song. And mm-hmm. it's all pretty much, you know. You know, a, a lyric and then a drum fill. I mean, and I, yeah, learning that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Wow. And all I did was I read it over and over and over and over and played it as many times as I possibly could before my eyes started to bleed, put the music away, and then played it, made a mental note of fills that I didn't think I had right, went back, read the music over and over. And I'm not kidding, probably nine hour days. And you I, said three weeks. I had three weeks to learn it, yeah, until I was flying out. So, yeah. And, by the way, the band is on stage and the drums are center stage on stage. So, and the whole show has to be memorized. So, that was it was interesting trying to learn someone else's drum part, memorize it in three weeks. <laughs> was there audi- uh, and not auditions? Was there a rehearsal? Uh, for me, no. Unfortunately, uh, I basically jumped in head first because they had had removed their other drummer. Yeah. So I met the cast while they were still touring. Yeah. I did a sound check. Which was I think three songs, and yeah. then jumped in and played the whole show that night. How'd it go? It was great. 
Yeah. Pretty much perfect. Nice. I had practiced it enough, it better have been. <laughs> I was going to say. Wow, that's that's really awesome, man. My favorite memory was the bass player, though, just kind of looking at me, you yeah. know, seeing where I was going to mess up or what I was going to do wrong. <laughs> it was pretty funny. That's great. He, and actually, that's funny. The bass player not only did American Idiot with me, but we both auditioned for the Queen gig, and we both got that as well. Oh, cool. So we ended up doing something like 500 and some shows together. Jeez. Over a two-year period. Jeez. Well, tell me about that, man. Uh, the Queen show, which uh, was based, I mean, in the UK for 12 straight years, it sat there on the West End. Um, it's a killer, killer, killer band uh, mm. with an interesting storyline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's it's supposed to take place in the future and it's got this wacky storyline. But, I mean, the whole thing is supposed to focus on the music. It's mm-hmm. I think we did 33 Queen songs in a three-hour musical. Wow. Um, some of them were cut a little bit short and that sort of thing, but yeah. I mean, it's it's all the best of the best, you know. I mean, yeah. they were just, oh man, undeniable. Uh, what was fun about that was sort of learning the intricacies of all the drum parts for that because I'd never actually sat down to listen to Queen just for the drums. Mm-hmm. I'd only listened to it, you know, to listen to Freddie sing or sing along, or it was on the radio. You know, exactly. I never actually sat down and sure. transcribed or figured out what was happening. Yeah. Um, and Roger is really an incredible drummer. Yeah. 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 He's crazy. I know what you're saying though. It's, it's, um, sometimes we're listening from the top down and, uh, certain bands have a personality about them, whether it's Eddie Van Halen or it's Freddie Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and I've had to learn some, a couple Queen songs and you're like, what is the tom fill that's just going on for days and yep. it's still grooving it's so 80s <laughs> yeah <laughs> and some 70s yes. <laughs> yeah it's super great well actually you were you were mentioning about auditioning and learning right. parts too because for the audition um, i decided to really put myself through the ringer because i had three days to prep for the audition um so i transcribed 25 queen tunes Wow. Uh, just because I wanted to know just about everything that Roger Taylor could possibly throw throw out fill-wise or his little nuances like him opening the hi-hat right? Um, while he hit the snare drum. Yes. And actually, funny story with that, that's actually because he didn't think his snare drum was loud enough or the clubs that they were playing, it wasn't mic'd and he didn't feel like it was cutting through, so he started opening his hi-hat every time he hit the snare drum so that it would pop. Wow. But super interesting. Yeah, that is. But, I, that's one thing I've always noticed about. Like, why is he doing that? Mm-hmm. Is it just a, a thing where his foot just comes up? That's how he keeps time? But that's it, it started as a way to solve a problem, and it became a signature. Yes. Which, I mean, gosh, I hope I have something like that right. someday. <laughs> Charlie Watts has his thing. Yeah, yeah. And Roger Taylor. Well, that's great, man. So he was at the audition and yeah. and Brian May? Roger was there. Brian was there. Uh, their producer was there. Uh, it was basically, I won't say a cattle call because it was an open invite, but there were 33 musicians uh, that showed up at a studio. Um, they called each of us in, basically a group of nine at a time. So you'd go in, you'd play a couple songs, they'd have you leave. They'd switch out some people or everybody and have another group come in. Um, and basically that happened for about six hours. Mm. And then they cut the group of 33 down to two on every instrument. And my name was the very last name called, mm. uh, which was frightening. <laughs> um, so then we went back in there and 
I mean, Bryant's, he's super energetic, happy. He's wandering around. You know, he's filming people on his iPhone. He's just super into it. Roger sat behind the console with his arms crossed. Oh, no. And just glared. <laughs> and I mean, there, nothing worse than, you know, mm-hmm. playing drums for a person that's staring at you like that, let alone being the person that originated the parts, you know? Right, right. So for that, uh, with all my prep work, I went in there knowing I wanted to sound exactly like Roger mm-hmm. and not focus on what the charts said again. And I think I was one of the only people that did that, which I, I think is why I ended up getting the job. Okay. Because I played what Roger knew and what he was expecting to hear, mm-hmm. not what was written on the sheet. Yes. So it was kind of interesting. Did you know that he was going to be there? It was a rumor, but... I mean, I didn't know for sure Mm -hmm. uh, until, you know, 20 minutes of sitting in there and all of a sudden they walk in, you know, but yeah, yeah. I tried not to let that skew anything. Although, oh, actually I I did drop a drumstick, (laughs) (laughs) finished one of the songs with one hand. I don't think anybody noticed, but man, I thought, I thought that was it. I thought I blew it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how, how, it's like, how does he play with one stick? Then it's probably fine. Iwaraki was 300 and I think it was 317. Okay. And then um, I think we did another 250 on American Idiot. Oh, okay. So, I mean, then that's over a year. So you're doing shows Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, two Saturday, two Sunday. Monday's either a day off or a travel day. Okay. I mean, it's nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So what, when did you do that? When did you do the We Will Rock You? I just finished that this past... Wait, what year is this? I know. Oh, goodness. It's 2016. <laughs> we are... Um, oh, goodness. So that was... It, the third? A year and four months ago, I guess I finished that. So 2014, okay. August. Is that okay. right? Yeah. And did you go from that to the gig with Nelson? Straight to Nashville, yeah, which Straight is where, where I started touring with them. Uh, I, I toured with a few different people. I was subbing with Katie Armiger. Right. Uh, was doing a ton of session work in town here. Mm-hmm. Um, also started doing the music supervisor job for the Queen show. So the first time I did that uh, on the ship was, it was almost a three-month period uh, because right. we were installing it for the very first time mm-hmm. ever. Okay. Right, and you had mentioned that before, and uh, so you're not playing drums with that. Nope, that I'm actually I'm teaching the entire band. So I'm teaching the drummer, guitarist, bass player, keyboardist, conductor. I'm teaching them the actual show and making sure that when I leave after three weeks, yes, it's up to the quality that Queen is expecting. So yes. if Roger Taylor, or Brian May walked in and sat down. Okay, that you know it's exactly what they want to hear. So yeah. that's sort of my job. Do you play those other? Do you play those other instruments? Uh, I, I play piano, uh-huh. um, but I've got a good enough ear. I can't necessarily show guitarists what to do, but I've got enough, a good enough ear and, and okay. way to describe it, I guess, that I can get away with it. <laughs> right, sure. You come from a musical family? Yeah, there are seven kids in my family, and my dad was a band director. So, I mean, so yes. I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what was in the water where we grew up, but all of us pretty much have perfect pitch and I mean, can figure out harmonies on the fly. I mean, it, I mean, thank you, dad. You know, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but, um, it's, it's pretty cool because I can hear a melody once memorize that and then figure out instantly a harmony that I can sing along with it. And that's incredible. But names can't remember names. 
It's Matt. It's Matt. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's great. So you're a small town in Wisconsin. Yep. Town of 500. I graduated in a high school class of 32. I went to the same building, K through 12. Holy moly. I uh, grew up on a farm. I worked on a farm uh, every night after school and weekends so that I could save up money for my first professional drum set. Paid $6,000 for my Pearl SRX cash wow. my junior year. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So when did you decide on drums? How old were you? Uh, my dad wouldn't let me play drums. So he decided to give me trumpet because he thought I'd be good at it. I was not good at it. Um, <laughs> and I tried it, I think, for probably about two years, starting when I was about seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, two or three years into that, I started, I started bugging him to let me play drums. And the answer mm-hmm. was continuously no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, by the time I was in fifth grade, what would that be? About 13 or 12 or 13, I guess. Uh, well, fifth grade. grade is like 10. That's my son. He's 10. 13 is eighth grade. Okay. So it was, it was seventh, what, around seventh grade then. Yeah, sure. I think I was 12 or 13 mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I was sitting in the living room for Christmas and opened my package and it was a plastic case. Didn't really know what it was. Popped it open and there was a snare drum inside. Wow. Um, and he, my dad said, well, what goes with a snare drum? And I said, drumsticks <laughs> so he was like well yes but what else and i said drum set and all of a sudden my family walked in with an entire oh. drum set like so that was nice. my that was my 13 year old christmas present that's awesome and he sat me down and he said i'm giving this to you but the stipulation is that you're not a drummer you are a percussionist and so he sort of lived by that ever yeah. since so making me continue piano lessons which i started when i was five mm-hmm. so i continued piano mm-hmm. uh, continued singing mm-hmm. but his focus was always making sure that i was a musical drummer not just somebody hitting things and making noise sure yeah. sure but granted uh because there are seven kids in my family that did make me practice five hours a day just to annoy everyone so <laughs> and that's not a joke <laughs> so all your brothers and sisters play yes all well. the most annoying instruments uh, we wow. had a bassoonist. We had a wow. oboe. Had an English horn. Yeah. <laughs> so almost very classical. I mean, oh, yeah, I don't everybody. know. It just I, uh, they're um, almost borderline offended at your dad <laughs> saying you're not a drummer. I think it's what I it think says you, on my business card. I man. know. What's right? wrong with that? Right. Oh, it does on mine too. Actually, I think it says drummer slash percussionist just to appease him. But, right. Uh, but I understand where he's going, and 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 I would stress that to any student or anybody sure. is is you know, and we're always talking about raising the bar and being more musical and you know doing those things. So. Yeah, I guess I'm being um, <laughs> contradicting myself, you know. Well, I and again, I think at that age, that was probably the appropriate way to put it. Sure. To me, especially now, mm-hmm. because um, I think that the entire way that I learned and the way I taught myself, because I taught myself to play drums when oh. I started for the first probably four years, okay, um, was sort of based on that notion. So, I mean, that same year he bought me the Gene Krupa Buddy Rich... Uh, like duet CD or I guess battle CD. I can't remember what the name of the, the or the title is of that. Wait right there. Oh, do you have it? <laughs> this is crazy. Hang on. He's walking away. Yeah. It's pure audio. 
would be it, would it? That is it. Yes, that is exactly it. He just pulled out the uh, the record. <laughs> got to be kidding me. Yeah, so that was the first CD I ever got. That Jazz thing. at the Philharmonic, Gene, Krupa, and Buddy Rich, the drum yeah, battle. That's exactly it. Okay, so... This is so good. Ugh. I, I'm just... Uh, we're digressing slightly here. This is nuts. Uh, so I went back to Ohio for the holidays, and it's January 3rd for anyone that's listening. And I stopped at my dad's, and um, he and his wife were moving into her house, and we're going through finding stuff, and uh, I find this record. This record. <laughs> and he goes, you want this? I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I want that. That's great. And, like, he's just giving stuff away. And I've picked up so many great records from him over the last few years, and this was one of them. That's and I incredible. literally got home a few days ago and have not... We listened to it on his turntable, but we have not listened to it here yet on the on my nicer stereo. Well, there you go. Now you've got your intro music. I did. <laughs> it would be a little bit, uh, swinging a little bit harder than, than what I have on there, for sure. Um, that's crazy, but that's the one. Yep. That's it? This and Dave Brubeck. Yeah, Dave Brubeck Quartet. Which one? Out of Time or... I think it was out of time with take five yeah, on it. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's called out of time. He, he basically gave me those two and said, I want you to base your entire playing career off of these two albums. So, I mean, this, this, this is the record. This is the, this is the I'm putting it in front of the microphone. This is the, this is the plastic sleeve of what Danny just talked about. That is nuts, man. It's so crazy. It's really crazy. Um, I've completely lost track of what you were saying. You, so your dad well, we're just got sort you. of talking about our start, but I mean, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a really, really, really strict household. And okay, it was sort of weird at the time, but like if I got caught listening to the radio, listening to rock or pop, and especially country, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I would be ground for weeks, grounded for weeks. Country music. Oh yeah. Oh, there, there was none of that in the house. I had a Bon Jovi cassette tape that I used to hide between my mattresses and like tell my parents I was going out for walks so I could go listen to it. Like, I mean, it was pretty funny. Okay. Okay. But yeah, there was not a lot of rock music and stuff. But I think as I started growing up and getting older, uh, he obviously started becoming a little bit more lenient and understanding mm -hmm. and started realizing that I was serious about it and I wasn't going to stop. Yeah. Um, so I think just sort of started lightening up and letting me you know, branch sure. out and not just do jazz. And How does he, you know, see what you're doing now? I think he's happy and impressed. At least I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we all hope so. Right, know, right. Our, especially our fathers. I mean, he was, he was an incredible trombone player, and I think he always really had hoped to have a career in music, so I think it's kind of fun for him to, to follow me around and see what I'm doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he he taught band for a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't know if that was necessarily the path he was expecting to go or wanting to go, but mm -hmm. that's the path he took. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious what their reaction was when you're like, "What's this song, Jesus of Suburbia?" If you know, if, <laughs> you know Actually, if you're a real religious family or that that well, that, that whole album. I mean, that, imagine, yeah, right, imagine right. my parents coming in and sitting. I mean, the opening of American Idiot. For those of you that don't know, so the entire scene is covered in about fifty televisions, mm -hmm. and the opening is basically news clippings over the last you know five ten years. Mm -hmm 
basically bashing bush mm-hmm. um you know i mean it's it's not good stuff it's, it's you know it's missile very, shootings right, it's, yeah right. it's very it's very alarming and jarring and it was super funny sitting there listening to that happen and knowing that my parents were sitting in the audience Gosh. like thinking oh goodness what is my mom gonna say <laughs> we got out of the show and i walked up to my mom and she's like oh i just loved it <laughs> <laughs> Like, I was like, you didn't pay any attention. No, no. <laughs> As only moms can do. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, you said you studied percussion. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, after I graduated, I got out of there as quickly as I could uh, mm-hmm. and went to Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, which is a okay. tiny private arts school in the middle of a farm or okay. middle of you know, a cornfield. Um, and I studied, actually I got two bachelor's degrees in the four years I was there. So I did music performance with my emphasis in percussion. And then I also got a communication degree, uh, with my emphasis in marketing, which was probably the best accident I think I ever could have done because I didn't realize, and no one teaches you how much marketing and networking and promotion is involved in being a professional musician. Right. Right. Um, which actually, I don't even know if you know this, but I actually do a seminar that I was doing in conjunction with all of my Broadway touring called Beyond the Gig. Yes, I wanted to ask so, you about that. Yeah. I saw that because your website is clean, well laid out. And so when I was doing some background and looking at that stuff, I did see that. Tell me about that, Beyond the Gig. Um, I literally started it because I was frustrated that I graduated and had no idea what to do. And yeah. everybody tells you to, you know, follow your backup plan. So I instantly went out and got a real job, did that for eight months and just got depressed and miserable. I mm-hmm. picked up drumsticks, no joke, once. Uh, that was out in Los Angeles. So I hadn't played in eight months. I realized I was working 60 hours a week sitting at a desk in a dark room and didn't know what had happened. Yeah. Uh, so kind of woke up and... Once I started touring and networking and figuring out how much was actually involved in this, I thought, you know what? People need to know about this. Mm-hmm. So uh, I created this seminar along with a good friend of mine, Danny Taylor, okay. who's another New York, New York drummer. Okay. Um, he and I actually met up for coffee, and we started talking about networking and stuff, and we had the exact same views on everything. I mean, it was, it was like sitting with you know, a twin brother sure. that you didn't know you That's had. That's good, yeah. So we, over about a five-month period, created this seminar. Okay. And it really focuses on networking, promotion, um, and basically everything business-oriented that you need to know to survive as a professional musician, which mm. they just, you know, not a lot of places. They're starting to introduce it, but no one teaches you in college. Right, right, right. So you focus so much on the playing, by the time you graduate, you're like, well, now what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do people do to hear what you're doing? You say seminar, so... Are you going to schools? Are you going to individuals? Yep. How does it's that work? Mainly universities. So while I was on the road, I would call as many universities because I mean I've got my itinerary for you know right. months and months and months mm-hmm. in advance. So mm-hmm. I would call every single university I could find in every single city, send mm-hmm. them emails until somebody finally got back to me and mm-hmm. uh, set up. If if I couldn't get paid for it, I would do it for free just for the exposure because mm-hmm. uh, I thought that that was extremely important and mm-hmm. it's good to get the message out there. So yeah, I would mainly do percussion departments and then i started realizing how relevant it was to not just drummers yes so started doing jazz departments so um i mean upwards of 50 to you know 80 people right would come out to these seminars and Mm -hmm. basically talk to them about the importance of you know marketing and networking and 
having business cards and, and being punctual and, you know, all the stuff that should be simple, stupid, or obvious that yeah. people just don't think about. Yeah. And, and it should be noted that you were early today to your interview. <laughs> <laughs> early is on time, on time is late. <laughs> so it's not a drum clinic, per no, se. No, I actually don't set up a drum set. I don't pick up a pair of drumsticks. Okay. Um, okay. And I got some really weird looks when I showed up at some percussion departments and I told them I didn't need anything. Yeah. Um, it's a group of people sitting in a giant semicircle and yep. I talk to them like you and I are talking now. Yep. So I think it's so important. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years old. You wouldn't think that, I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't done a ton of stuff, but I think I've done enough to be relevant to a point that clearly I'm not going to stop working and I'm doing something okay. Yes, I agree. And that's, that's I mean, I'm in no way egotistical, but I feel like there is a certain, there are certain formulas that you do have to follow as there are rules in Nashville for how to get gigs. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain formulas that I do think that need to be followed and people need to understand in order Mm -hmm. to consistently work. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be a musician, then that's what you need to focus on. You can't really have a day job, you know, working 40 hours a week and try and be a musician at the same time. And Mm -hmm. that's what I found was either I'm going to do it all Mm -hmm. or I'm going to do nothing. So Mm -hmm. I quit my job. You know, I jumped in head first and I said, sink or swim. I moved to Nashville the first time. I'm not kidding. I spent every penny I had on my deposit and my first month's rent. And I had $3 in my bank account. And I said, you know what? I'm going to figure it out and make it work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you did. Yeah. Well, are there some things that you cover? Anything that you can kind of give a teaser of what you do? And does your the other guy do the same He does. I mean, he does sort of his own take on it. But um, I mean, basically, we we created a draft of, you know, guidelines for what we're going to talk about. And then we base everything off of that. I mean, it's important to use personal stories. So people know, because I mean, nobody knows who I am. I mean, somebody says Danny Young, they're gonna be like, who? Mm. So it's important to have at least evidence or things to back up what you're talking about. Sure. Um, so it's a lot of personal stories mm-hmm. based on what you're talking about or even stories from other people, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of secondhand stuff. But sure. um, I sort of go through different sections. The first one, promotion, is sort of talking about, you know, uh, meeting people, appropriate mm-hmm. ways to meet people, mm-hmm. inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Nashville handshake, handing out business cards, sort of becoming less of a thing now, I think, with Facebook think so. and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, just basically talking about media too and, and how social media can either make or break a career. Yeah. Because people don't realize that those drinking or smoking pictures that they're putting up are having an impact on mm-hmm. what could or would have been their career. Mm, so I think no one talks to college kids about that or maybe parents do and they're not going to listen. So it's important for yeah. somebody that is in the business to mention it because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody else is. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's all, it's, A lot of it's just stuff that shouldn't have to be said but needs to be said or said by someone other than their teacher you know right right i think social media is still a relatively young way of communicating in our society that the rules are being created all the time new rules are being created and uh, you hear on the news about you know, hey, somebody posted this on Facebook, and their employee, their employer, their potential employer, looked at it and decided not to hire that person mm-hmm. because of something. And I always thought, hey, maybe I'll do some social media or, or 
do this uh, Facebook thing and see if I can get some work out of it. And I don't know if it's ever really gotten me gigs personally. No, I and again, me too. I mean, I've emailed on a ton of them. I don't yeah. know if I've actually gotten a gig. It's all been from a friend calling me yeah. and saying, hey, this person's looking for a drummer. I put your name in and they're It's always by yeah. reference, right. Yeah. But what I think is sometimes you can lose an opportunity or miss an opportunity based on social media. Yeah, I agree you know? with that. So like you were saying, certain incriminating pictures. And I wonder, I'm just wonder if that would extend to um, some people with very, very strong opinions religiously politically and social media is such a easy place to just go off and you know no matter what your viewpoint is i'm just i'm just curious if that would prevent people from opportunities that someone may say yeah, i want to hire this guy and then they're just maybe because those are all things and mm-hmm. sometimes we we hold a lot of those things very close to our hearts and um you know they talk about on the road you know, be careful or stay away from politics and religion mm-hmm. maybe yeah. in the studio or I on do the, the same road. thing with my girlfriend. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a time and a place. And, um, and certainly uh, there are musical situations and bands that are, that turn into family, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. and you become very close. And then there's an opportunity to bring that stuff up. But I've been on many situations where I like this musical situation. I like this situation. I like this work relationship. But I know that this person is completely on the opposite end politically from me. And we're just not going to go there. Sure. We're just going to have a good working relationship. And and there's no reason you can't. Right. Exactly. But I wonder if social media brings that into the the forefront and may prevent. I I I would say yes. I mean, one weird thing I think with social media is people have become more comfortable on there than they have on face to face, which of course there's no repercussions. Right. Right. So they can say and do whatever they want, whether or not you or I would respond to that. We're still seeing it and we're still involved in it. Yeah. Therefore I do think that that, that definitely could have some sort of, you know, either positive or negative repercussions depending. I even, I even try and stay away from it in the podcast but the only reason why i'm bringing it up is just because it sounds like something that you talk about with the sorry beyond the gig i keep having to look at (laughs) referencing it i do because i think and as the generations get younger and younger i think it is a more relevant part of their life i mean i look at my sister my young sister who's 19 now you know Mm -hmm. and how much she uses it compared to what i ever did or do for that matter yeah exactly and it's i mean it's just it's a completely different thing so if people want to grow up from that age and and be professional musicians and things then yeah that's something that needs to be brought up Three days after I graduated, I moved out to Los Angeles and okay. I got a job working for a film editing company. Oh, cool. Um, it was through a connection of a guy that graduated from my college. Okay. So he basically got me the job. I did that. Um, eventually, I think it was seven months in, I called my sister and I said, what am I doing? This was the eight-month gig you were telling me about. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, yeah, the job, the day job, mm-hmm. sitting at a desk. Mm-hmm. Great money, great benefits. I got my teeth did. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I called my sister and I just basically said, what am I doing? I was like, I feel awful because, you know, this guy from my college got me the job yeah, right. and I feel like I'm letting him down if I quit. And she said, you know what? They can have somebody hired in an hour. She's like, they don't need you. And I'm not saying that to be mean, mm-hmm. but someone would love to have that job, whether or not it's you. So I basically put in my, right. my two week notice that day 
and yeah. uh, left not really having any idea what I was going to do. Started applying for jobs, and my very first gig that I booked as a professional musician was Lost in the 50s with the Platters, which is the Branson show yeah. that they were going to take on tour. Uh-huh. And little did I know that a guitarist that I used to work with in high school was also on the gig. So Wow. Yeah. It is a small world. But that was my first gig. That was three months. Uh, I left there and then randomly got a call to go on cruise ships over in Europe. And that was sort of the start of everything. The, the start of that. Yeah. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. I want to ask you um, two things I'm starting to ask a lot is, is there one compliment that you hear from other musicians, other people about you, your playing that you hear maybe on a consistent basis? Um, definitely that it's musical, which to mm-hmm. me is what I strive for. So I think that's always the best compliment. One that I've been hearing a lot that I think is interesting, <laughs> I, I, I guess it's interesting if nothing else, is that I sound like I'm playing to a metronome, but in the best way when I'm not playing to a metronome. Okay. Um, which again is sort of what we talked about at the beginning about, you know, it should be so second nature that you don't have to think about it. Right. Um, it sounds like a strong sense of time. Yeah. Yeah. Without it being rigid and yeah, when there's not a metronome, when you're not doing it, you're not sorry, when you're not playing along with a click, yeah, that kind of that's nice, that's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice compliment. Um, and do you have? Is there anything like uh, maybe a, a record or records or um, a drummer that you draw inspiration from? Oh goodness, I mean. I know we all have a million of them, but name the genre, you know. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I think I think that's something interesting too, because I do so much different music. I think for every genre, I've sort of got someone different that I'll look at. Yeah. Um, currently, at the moment, oh goodness. You know what's also weird is, as a drummer, I probably listen to more singer songwriters than I do drummers, which well, is sort yeah, of weird. Sure. But, no, no, I see that. Yeah. Um, Dave Weckl has always been one of my favorite until I realized that there was no way in heck I was ever going to be Dave Weckl. (laughs) And then I started sort of moving away from that. (laughs) You're too good, man. I can't listen to you anymore. (laughs) What? I'm just trying. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, I guess the person that I I guess I would most love to be in love style-wise, let's see if you can name it, Sting's Drummer. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> who sure. does yeah oh. uh yeah my new cache is pretty oh wait not that no <laughs> <laughs> um vinning yes just ridiculous i mean well i mean who doesn't it. though i mean that's keith, i feel i feel like i need a, keith, a unique keith carlock and keith, well yeah i mean yeah, any keith, of those guys yeah, yeah yeah i've been lately my my shtick has been a lot of the gospel drummers okay the, sort of the gospel guys because i just I find it so interesting that most of them can't read a lick of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so listening to what they creatively come up with, I think it's something so different than what I would that it's really inspiring and and sort of helps me grow as a player. Sure, sure. That's great, man. I, I, and that gospel drumming is seems like it's really taking on a life of its own. And there's books now, and there's mm-hmm. just there's just a whole... Uh, style that's being created and that's just it just opens up our world a lot more it's funny because i mean i I will say that i probably never have a chance to use that sort of drumming maybe maybe little sparks of it Mm -hmm. you know some linear Mm -hmm. stuff or something like that but for the most part 
for me, it's just something that I can listen to and makes me laugh, like in a good way. Like, what was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's just something really fun that's so far from what I do that Mm -hmm. it's just, it's awesome. For those of you that don't know, Daniel Glass has a couple different DVD series that yeah. that he's done, which are, if you haven't seen it, it's the history of, of drumming or drums, I guess, mm-hmm. which is, goodness, I can't remember how many DVDs it is, but in- incredible series that you have to watch from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then another that is sort of focusing on, I guess, the evolution of the drum set mm, um, right. and jazz and music in general. Yeah. Um, so I got, when we did Nutty Professor, supposed to take place in about, you know, early 60s and i wanted to have a drum set built that was going to be era appropriate that wasn't a vintage kit Mm -hmm. so daniel and i talked a long time about um, actual bearing edge cuts um, Mm -hmm. you know head choices Mm. since back then you know most stuff would have been actual calf calf hide Mm -hmm. so instead of using that what the best current solutions would be to get the same Mm -hmm. sound Mm -hmm. and nerded out on that for probably probably a good couple weeks in emails and phone calls until I finally had a list of everything that I wanted to build. And I had Treehouse Drums out of Topeka, Kansas build me a custom, essentially 63 Ludwig that was actually a 2000 and, you know, 2010 Treehouse custom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So what I benefited from that was having the sound of a vintage kit with all new hardware and all new, you know, bearing edges that you weren't going to have any of the the weird, you know, the weird sounds or right, right, the inconsistencies no tuning, yeah, or, or no tuning issues, yeah, right. What kind of heads were you using on that? Um, I was actually using the vintage. I think it was the vintage ambassadors at that point, mm-hmm. um, which is a. It's basically the the uh, ambassador. I think thicker yes. and a different, completely different coating. Yeah. Um, the only thing I didn't like about those was the coating would wear off really fast. Oh, um, So I ended up having to change heads a lot, a lot more often. Okay. Um, but the sound of those, it's going to give you a lot more warm tones, mm-hmm. um, and you can actually get a note out of the drums instead of just a thud, which was important yeah. for the jazz stuff that I was doing on that show. Right. Right. Awesome. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, you mentioned that you sing mm-hmm. and you have this musical background and all those things. And it's it's just great to hear how you're involving all those experience and talent and applying that in a way that keeps you busy, keeps you working. Um, in scheduling our talk today, uh, you could meet earlier because you had a writing session. Mm-hmm. So... Are you doing a lot of that? Is that how you stay busy in between traveling? Or what actually, other things are you doing? Like? Sure. Uh, I mean, I was primarily a, a songwriter for several years. I mean, I love mm-hmm. writing music. I've got a ton of stuff that I do. Uh, everything from vocal arrangements, like, you know, acapella arrangements mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I made my living in college. I wrote vocal arrangements wow. and created barbershop quartets to go out and sing for weddings or valentine's day you know charge a hundred dollars a time and yeah you've got lunch for the next three weeks (laughs) so i think i mean that's always sort of been my mo is find as many different ways to accomplish a goal as possible that's all related to music yeah um so for me 
currently, I mean, I'm not only doing the sessions, I'm doing the, the Nelson touring. Yeah. Um, I'm working with Danica Ports, who's another singer in town, okay. doing a ton of stuff with her. We're actually headed to the Middle East doing a military tour starting oh, in February. Wow. So yeah. that'll be a crazy experience. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm music supervising for Broadway shows. Yep. Um, I arrange drum parts for Royal Caribbean. Mm-hmm. I'm currently producing all of, uh, working with, sorry, co-producing uh, all of Royal Caribbean's recording studios, which I just got brought to Nashville. So we've got one of those coming up in January. Nice. So it's a three-day recording. Um, what else? Contracting some stuff. I mean, yeah. just anything and everything I can do that's related to music, I mm-hmm. find is relevant. Right. Um, whether or not that means it's drumming. Because for me, I mean, my ultimate goal was to be a musician and be happy. So all of this stuff put together is what I found makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Drums by itself is great, but with all yeah. that free time, like you have to fill it with something else that's, yep. you know, that ne- isn't necessarily drums because that's how people burn out. So for me, it's the variety, I think, that keeps me sane. And I, I can only imagine that it adds to your drumming. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, hands down. That experience. Well, thank you, dude. I appreciate Danny uh, just hanging and and let me know what's going on and and, um, giving some people some insight on other things that keeps us busy in this crazy business. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, and Happy New Year to you and everybody out there. Hey, thanks, man. Appreciate it. So there is Danny Young. Um, Just He is just killing it, doing a ton in a very short amount of time taking his work very seriously, taking um, just paying attention to the details, and um, it's just amazing. I, I love the fact that he mentioned that uh, Buddy Rich Gene Krupa record that I just happened to have. It was just one of those serendipitous moments that I was like, this, this isn't real. I can't believe it. And he just mentioned that one record, and uh, I happened to have it right there after just having it in my possession for just a few days but enjoyed that thanks danny so much for that uh thanks mike jackson for your technical help um and helping uh us getting some more of this new stuff started and uh mike's going to be helping me getting zach on board again next week zach albetta is going to be uh presenting his premiere uh interview i believe it's matthew Starr, and um So I'm excited to hear, and I hope you guys are too, to hear where we're going with all this. But excited to hear Zach. and um, But thanks, Mike, for helping me get this uh, up and sounding good. And, um, of course, Nick Ruffini's Drummer Resource. Check out that. Lots of content. He's been doing it for about three years. Uh, I'm excited for this connection and this new partnership with him and to see what more we can do with this podcast to kind of take it to the next level, if you will. So again, everyone, thanks so much for your support and uh, hope to see you around. See ya. Bye-bye.